In our polarized world, seeing conservatives and liberals agree on something is kind of like finding water in the desert. Well, one of those agreements actually happened in the desert. New Mexico Governor Michelle Luan Grisham used emergency powers to suspend the right to carry firearms in Albuquerque for 30 days. For those carrying a pocket constitution, this goes directly against the Second Amendment right to bear arms. As expected, the police chief, sheriff, and attorney general of New Mexico all said they would not enforce this order. However, what was not expected was some of the loudest advocates for gun control in the country agreed that this crossed the line. We cover the motivations behind this unexpected unity. Also, we dig into the mailbag to answer. Why do liturgical hymns sound like 70s pop songs? Trigger warning for Here I Am Lord and Eagle's Wings Enjoyers. Finally, Senator Kennedy took a trip to the local school library to read some books to Congress. All this and more on this week's edition of The Loopcast. God bless everyone. Welcome back to the Loopcast. Today, the team is back together. We have Tom, Erica, and Josh. Erica, welcome back. Glad to have you back. And today, we're going to go straight into something that we've never really seen done before. We have New Mexico's Governor Michelle Luan Grisham. She issued an emergency public health order last week, uh, suspending the right to carry firearms in public. This is across Albuquerque and the surrounding county for at least 30 days in response to a spate of gun violence. So the order specifically states, no person other than a law enforcement officer or licensed security officer shall possess a firearm, either openly or concealed. And for those of you who have read the Constitution before, uh, this seems like a pretty direct suspension of a constitutional right um, that the Founding Fathers believed was given to us by God. So uh, I'm going to get into the reasoning here. and I'm going to pass it right off to Erica. Erica, why do you think that she decided to, to take this extreme step? So the reasoning that she gave uh, is that Albuquerque has set new records in the last year in gun violence and mortality due to gun violence. So they've seen over 120 people killed, including some children. The last shooting uh, resulted in the death of an 11-year-old boy, which is very tragic. Um, this year alone, they've seen um, 76 victims as of last week. And her reasoning that she cited was that they need to put a pause on everything and that by taking guns out of the hands of all citizens, and this of course is only legally owned guns because they can't really control illegally owned guns, um, by taking the guns out of the hands of citizens, this will give law enforcement the chance and the breathing room to figure out what they can do. And that was literally what she said. What We need time to figure out what to do. The response, of course, from the, uh, the police chief, when you can imagine the response from you know, pro-gun rights activists was very negative. But the interesting thing was local law enforcement came right out immediately and said they would not enforce this. This includes the Albuquerque chief of police, uh, Harold Medina, who said he won't enforce it, and the Bernalillo, which is the Albuquerque County. Uh, Sheriff John Allen said that, quote, the temporary ban challenges the foundation of our constitution, which I swore an oath to uphold. I'm wary of the potential risks posed by prohibiting law-abiding citizens from their constitutional right to self-defense. So he was questioning not only the constitutional legitimacy of her order, but also whether this would in fact further endanger lawful gun-carrying citizens. And of course, the governor, uh, she's interviewed by CNN the next day, and she snaps back. She goes, it's not for the police to tell me what's constitutional or, or not. And she goes on to say, well, I'm a lawyer and I know the Constitution, so this is within my rights. Is it within the rights of the attorney general who also said that he's not going to defend yep, lawsuits? Yeah, state attorney or, general, I mean, New it, Mexico. Such a crazy state attorney general said he's not going to defend lawsuits It's it, because this isn't constitutional. But interestingly, and, and I think this is where a lot of the commentary comes in, we have uh, Representative Ted Lieu, Democrat in California, definitely no friend of guns. Far left. Far left. Right. About as far left as it gets. Ted Lieu. Right. And uh, David Hogg, who many uh, may recognize the name, he was uh, a student during the Parkland shootings in Florida, who's kind of- uh, The Harvard scholar. Right. He's, he's become somewhat of a, a, a representative <laughs> for people for gun control in America, a young kid. And he tweeted out, I support gun safety, but there's no such thing as a state public health emergency exception to the US Constitution. So kind of interesting to see it really makes me think, what are their intentions? Well, they, it, it can't be because they okay, so guns. 
David Hogg and Ted Lieu are, are really worried that she's letting the cat out of the bag. You can't do a public health to get rid of the, the, the Second Amendment because they know it's the, the danger is this will create a backlash of people will reassert their constitutional right to, to protect themselves and, to, and the right to bear arms. They know you can't do this. Um, basically, they want to boil the frog slowly. And that's what's going on here. It's not like they're... It's not like Ted Lieu and David Hogg suddenly have appreciation for the Second Amendment and think, yeah, people should be able to have guns to protect themselves. I mean, I, when I see these kind of proposals, you know, like declaring a health emergency, we should absolutely be worried. That's exactly what they did with COVID. This is their textbook. You know, she's the first politician that I know that's done this, this New Mexico governor, but it's not like it's a new idea. So there's an organization called thetruthaboutguns.com, and they're, they're calling for this. Hey, here's a way to solve the crime problem deprive everyone of the right to, to protect themselves with guns. Um, okay. And then the Journal of American uh, of the American Medical Association also had an article dedicated to this concept. And I just feel like, you know, we have a problem also in our country with drunk drivers. And so I think the way to solve the problem of drunk drivers, people, because d- drunk drivers are out there killing people who are on the roadways, people who are totally sober. So if we want to solve this problem, we need to get rid of all sober drivers, right? That's the same logic of gun control. You know, you can't be responsible. The government needs to take this away from you. So I just, I find it absolutely ridiculous. Some, I, you know, I live in a very rural area. If someone comes to my house, what am I going to do? Call the police? They're going to be half an hour away. It's just, give me a break. It's not realistic. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think to your point, Josh, too, seeing all of the sort of leftist uh, gun control activists come out against the governor of New Mexico here, it's that she took the step too soon, right? They know the American public is not ready. There's going to be a backlash. And so they're coming out and saying, no, 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 no. We're not here to destroy the Constitution. Um, We're totally in support of the Constitution because they understand that you have to play the long game. And like you said, you have to boil the frog. I think that metaphor is totally apt here. It reminds me a little bit of the phenomenon we saw with Kamala Harris over the weekend, too. Uh, Vice President of the United States comes out and she says, well, you know, we're not for, nobody supports abortion up until birth. Nobody supports that. And of course, they're seeing that Americans uh, push back when you go to that extreme of we want abortion all the way up until the moment of birth, including options for infanticide. That's the long game. But they're having to walk back their rhetoric. And that's what she did, even though when you push them and you say, well, when is the limit? They can't give you an answer because there isn't one. Yeah, she never voted for any limit when she was in the Senate. Absolutely. She's so full of baloney. But they understand They understand the long game, and that's what the left is so good at here. So, Well, the long, the long game, the, the struggle with the long game is you can't admit the truth of what you want because if you accidentally admit the truth. Which is what the New Mexico governor just did. She, she, overplayed. she overplayed her hand. Yeah. And I think what's interesting, it kind of reminds me a little bit of our conversations about the FBI is people like the sheriff, people like the attorney general, people that join the FBI, their first oath is to the Constitution, to uphold the Constitution. And so these people are actually truly doing their duty by disobeying this order because it, it actually goes against the Constitution. What I think is was not smart on the New Mexico governor's front is that she put them in a position to where they'd have to do that. To almost make people realize that you can do that. Because I think there's so many times where, especially over the past couple of years with COVID or whatever, I even think back to post 9-11, you know, rest in peace, all those people, but um, s- such a tragic event. But what came after was an era basically of government surveillance between the Patriot Act, all the rights that we gave up to the Department of Homeland Security. It's like when people, when people actually realize, oh, I actually can disobey because it is against the Constitution, that actually is my obligation to do so. Then you start losing that kind of imaginary power that we kind of cede to some of these elected officials to do things that are illegal. That would be my two cents. Well, and I, I agree with you that the Patriot Act was a violation of our civil liberties, but at least it was done through our elected representatives. It was passed by Congress. Now, I think it should be repealed, and I think you can file lawsuits against it, but at least it was done by our elected representatives, we, who we can hold accountable. But when one person, as the governor of New Mexico, just unilaterally decides, oh, this one piece, this one critical plank of the Constitution, I'm just going to void it out for people who live in the city of Albuquerque. It's like, that's not how this works. And that was my big frustration with COVID. So the COVID was this 
brand new unknown disease that could, you know, that people were, were really worried about and lots of people were dying. So I understand it. So the, you can give the executive a little bit of leeway for a while, for like a couple of weeks, maybe at most 30 days. But then after that, I kept saying, no, you can't do this. Any other decisions like, should we keep schools open or not? Should we do, you know, should we restrict travel? You know, all those decisions should be made by people through elected representatives, you know, where you can weigh the costs and benefits of different actions or whatever. Just this, we got this idea that, well, the experts at this bureaucracy tell me the safest way to do it is to do X. So therefore, I'm just going to, you know, with the signature of my pen, declare no one has this right anymore in the state. And I'm going to make the decision for everyone. Like, hello, that's like a dictatorship. That's not how we do things. In the yeah, United well, what you're, what you're t- discussing really is emergency powers. And we basically were in a two and a half, three year emergency power state. I remember we basically had to pry it from right. the cold hands of Governor Whitmer in Michigan. It was unbelievable. Two and a half years later to actually be in an actual government state of emergency officially. I mean, we've had a student loan freeze forever, partially because of this. There's a lot of things that were basically excused because of that. The student loan thing was that was the the law that they used to extend that that Biden used to extend that was something that was done right after nine eleven because they wanted to help out um, people who were deciding to enter into the military and so they're making these exemptions based on you know nine eleven and so like wait a minute now this thing that you did did for nine eleven you're going to suddenly say to every single student in the whole country it's a you know again it's just the 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 left has this lawless mentality where they like to just do whatever they want. It's so randomly decided, like arbitrarily decided, because of course we're concerned about gun violence here in Albuquerque, but when there were actual riots going on in 2020 and 2021, there was no emergency power pulled there to get these people off the streets, sort of protect businesses or whatever. So I, I'd say the gun lobby and and actual Americans who enjoy their Second Amendment freedoms smartly well, understand okay. if i could say smartly understand you can't give these people an inch because like you said they're going to pull some 9-11 era emergency and continue to enjoy the powers that you've granted them voluntarily you can't give these people an inch totally agree with you i just want to make one point and i, I know what you mean but i want to make sure our audience understands so like I, I hear a lot of times on the left they use the word gun lobby and they make it a seem like the manufacturers of the of guns are the ones that are giving massive amounts of money to politicians, and that's why we can't have safe gun laws. That is actually, I mean, it's just a lie. It's just not actually true at all. Like, if you're gonna if you're gonna attack our opponents, like if, if the gun control activists want to be honest, it's like the reason why we don't have gun control laws and why gun control laws fail every time is not because of some m- big money thing from manufacturers of guns. It's because people like all of my uncles who are hunters and they own guns, they're voters. The NRA doesn't have a lot of, the NRA only has power insofar as there are millions of voters who are like, that guy's bad on guns? Okay, thank you, NRA, and I'm not going to vote for him, and that guy's career's over. That's how that happens. It's got nothing to do, there's, it's not like a whole bunch of money changing hands. Like there are, the, there are in, in politics, these big political action committees that have tons of money that can toast a candidate. They can, you know, uh, ruin someone's political career. But when it comes to guns, it's actually just voters are like, if that guy doesn't support my right to defend myself, I'm not going to vote for him. And their career is over. Like in Montana, there's a very far left wing uh, Democrat, John Tester. He's been the senator from Montana. I It's because he got elected like in 2006 and, you know, it, which was a really bad year for Republicans. And so he sneaks in there. Montana's not as red of a state as you think. And, and he... He's always there with his bolo tie and he talks about guns and he's driving his pickup truck, right? So he realizes that he needs to be pro-gun. But when it comes to voting on abortion, he is just as bad as anyone from New York City or California. Do you understand what I'm saying? So like they know like, hey, I can't upset the, the gun crowd. Um, and so that's, that's the power of the NRA. It's not in money. It's in changing hearts and minds. Now, in terms of, you know, political action, you know, uh, there's a lot of political action committees that have a lot of money to throw around. Um, you know, the Chamber of Commerce is a big one. I, I, it's sort of on the Republican side, although it's not as much anymore. Um, there's other political action committees that have a lot of money. You know, 
Um, I mean, the left has a right, lot so of like these, you know, like the a, abortion a, lobby, big pharma, like who are we talking about? Teachers unions. Teachers unions are huge and they give 95% of their money to Democratic candidates. The Planned Parenthood, Emily's List, there's a lot of pro-abortion political action committees. They have a lot of money. The industri- mil- military industrial complex does as well, I'm sure. That's for sure. And that's part of the reason why uh, over the last you know 20 or 30 years, the Republican Party became more and more pro-war. Um, George W. Bush fomented that as well. But then now, that was one thing. I mean, even critics of Donald Trump should give him credit. Like He really kind of slowed the roll on that and was was didn't start any new wars. He was the first president not to start a new war in like at least four decades uh, since actually Reagan. And so you look at this and the some of these packs, like like you say, that if um, the military industrial complex, they don't like Trump. And so they give money to organizations that attack Trump. And it's like, huh, it's almost like, you know, you'll put you'll give money to an organization that will attack Trump because He's, you know, not a pro, he's not a family man. But the reason why you're doing that is to try to convince conservative voters not to vote Yeah, for I mean, him. they don't own him. You know, your real mission is to make sure that the pipeline goes through for, you know, um, more I war. I think one of the most convincing arguments I heard from Trump was, I, I'm not owned by anyone. I'm a self-made man. I'm not taking money from these big interests. And at the time, that was like something I had never heard before. Because in order to get to there, you have to spend mm-hmm. a remarkable amount of money, especially if you're a career politician. You often don't have that unless you're Nancy Pelosi with insider trading. Which is why but... his grass, right, his grassroots fundraising and his personal fortune are so impressive, right? Yeah. Definitely makes him an interesting candidate, no doubt. But speaking of rich people, well, before I get into rich people, we will be talking Elon Musk. But so here at the Loopcast, here at Catholic Vote, of course, we, we're political junkies. We talk about current events as it relates to to Catholicism and politics, but one thing that I can guarantee you we're all doing is praying. And so we've witnessed, as we've covered ad nauseum, a lot of violence against Catholics, specifically against Catholic churches, with some being burned down and vandalized. We have a tracker over 300 um, over the past couple of years. Uh, we are also seeing a lot of targeting from the Department of Justice, FBI. We've kept you up to date on all these things. And of course, we want to continue to advocate for justice. We're not going to stop. But however, the best way to protect ourselves now, we believe, is through prayer. So we at Catholic Vote have a St. Michael Novena that we are all praying here and we'd like you to join. So this is going to be from September 20th to 29th. We're going to have a link in the bio for you to sign up, to follow along through email, be praying with us here. Um, When we get everyone together in prayer, uh, that's when we see some real, real uh, magic happen. That's how we make things happen. So I I really want to invite all of you, strongly encourage, please join us in praying the St. Michael Novena. I will have the details in the bio, but hopefully we see you on that list and we'll be praying along with you. The question is, should we do political action or should we do prayer? And the answer, of course, is both. I mean, you can't look at this last year and realize Mark Hawk got, you know, a bunch of federal agents bust into his house, take him away. And what happens? He goes in front of a court. They're like begging him to take a plea deal. He's like, no deal. <laughs> he fights it and he wins. I'm convinced that's prayer. Yeah, no doubt. So join us on that. Once again, link at the bio. So, uh, rich people, Elon Musk. Um, we've had a few people ask, actually, kind of what's going on with them. We've heard a lot of headlines, and they, they wanted us to kind of give a update on some of the, the recent stories involving him. So, he had a new biography. This was released this week uh, by Walter I- Isaacson. He's the former CEO of CNN. He wrote the biography titled Elon Musk, very original. Um, so, there's been a few interesting tidbits that have come out of that interview, and then other things surrounding him at this time. One of them being... Uh, his program called Starlink. And for people that are unfamiliar, Starlink was intended to be the ability to basically connect people to the internet via satellite all over the world, low cost, basically free. He's worked with a lot of different countries um, to get this up and make it available. Basically, people took a segment of the book in which they were discussing how he relates to the war in Ukraine, uh, which is interesting because I don't even think Elon himself, as he said, didn't really see himself really being involved as a private American citizen. So. The Ukrainians wanted to launch an offensive against Russia in Crimea uh, with these drone submarines. And the drone submarines were connected via the internet. And so as they were going towards Crimea to eventually execute an attack, they lost connectivity to the internet and washed along the shore. So the headlines that came out from uh, hostile news outlets, would put it that way, were saying that Elon Musk <laughs> specifically turned off the the connectivity so that these submarines would fail. He's on fail. Russia's side was the subtext. 
yeah, on Russia's side. He's anti-Ukraine. Um, all and all these people were calling him an American traitor because he wouldn't uh, cooperate with the Ukrainians, which is just kind of an insane thing to say. Well, and they know they know what it means we're, to be an, a traitor. So inside knowledge, Let's give him credit. <laughs> So the interesting part about this is, of course, that characterization is untrue. And Walter Isaacson, Walter Isaacson himself came and clarified. So what actually happened was uh, Starlink never made a guarantee of having connectivity over Crimea. And the Ukrainians, after this attack, basically came to Elon Musk and said, hey, turn on Starlink in Crimea. You, you need to help us here. And Elon, I think, smartly said, if this happens, it's going to cause a much larger war, potentially a nuclear one. And uh, Starlink, in the terms of service, explicitly says we're not here to support any offensive military action. So Starlink can't be used to attack other countries, which I think is something that it seems pretty reasonable. But a lot of people have kind of brought up, you know, the amount of power that he holds in all of his different initiatives truly could change the course of a war, which I think is, is scary to some people to think that a private citizen could do so. So I think that's why he's being attacked. Also, he's been very clear that He's free speech. He, he doesn't really fall in line with a lot of the other billionaires that get universal praise. Think uh, Bill Gates or even uh, Bezos. They, they don't get this kind of uh, scrutiny or attack. Well, I think to draw a parallel with Trump that we just discussed, he's not a bot man, right? In the sense that he can't, he's shown that he will not be controlled, that he has his own thoughts, his own way of looking at the world. And that's terrifying, I think, too leaders of nations to autocrats to anyone who sees the world as a struggle between power and the most important thing is to grasp power and to control the people around you. And he's just shown that he's he's taken himself out of that game, right? The game of, you know, this is the side of Russia, this is the US, this is the Biden, this is the Democrat, this is the Republican. And he's just he's kind of a loose cannon. So I, in that way there's a lot of parallels there with why Trump is so feared and hated. Yeah, original thinkers are not allowed. Exactly. Exactly. How dare you yeah, have right. an original thought? But I believe Starlink was not the only attack on Elon Musk, Pogo. No, Starlink wasn't. And it's funny you, you brought up attack, too, because the Department of Justice decided to attack uh, SpaceX, another one of his innovations, uh, through a lawsuit. And the lawsuit was interesting considering that it was against SpaceX for not hiring asylum seekers and refugees, uh, claiming employment discrimination. Um, I'd like to put an important disclaimer. The Department of Justice themselves actually require legal citizenship for employment within important the Department point. of Justice. Oh, how about that? Um, <laughs> oh, oh, oh. Yeah, some, some context here. <laughs> ruh ruh raggy. ruh raggy. And uh, Elon has come back. SpaceX was repeatedly told that hiring anyone who is not a permanent resident of the United States would violate international arms trafficking law, which would be a criminal offense. Uh, we couldn't even hire Canadian citizens, despite Canada being a part of NORAD. This is another case of weaponization of the DOJ for political purposes. And but do we even need to spend the time? I mean, cutting Josh through does. this. Josh does. Why? Up. Why do they? Josh, what's going on here? Why? Uh, it's so obvious to me. I mean, they, they, they don't like Elon Musk because they wouldn't allow him to use a Starlink to attack Russia, right? That's one thing. And then two, that he managed to buy Twitter <laughs> and allow what? free speech and let conservatives be able to organize and convince and win arguments there. How dare he? Because, you know, the, the Biden administration was like, wait a minute now, we, it, it, Twitter is supposed to be the press engine for the FBI, right? Like, this is what people was, don't realize. Like, yeah. they, I, I still is such a scandal that the FBI was like telling Twitter, hey, delete this tweet, delete that tweet. Like, the left, which, which, the left, which loves to say Thomas Jefferson was so amazing because he believed in the freedom of the conscience and all this other stuff and freedom of speech and say whatever you want to and oh my goodness like dude if this isn't fascism i don't know what is the the, the federal law enforcement agencies are telling twitter a private company that they have to delete messages of the free speech of american citizens like this is insane. so josh i don't need to be the first one to say this but it seems like the department of justice is hyper political i mean we're talking about targeting mark hauk we're talking about uh going after pro-lifers trying to lock them up for life we're talking about going after January 6th people, locking them up, no parole. And now we're talking about going after SpaceX for the most frivolous, ridiculous lawsuit ever. Do you remember another time in your lifetime where the Department of Justice was like this? Or is this something unique just to our era? It's, it's really gotten hyper-political over the last 15 years or so. And the thing is, like when, 
and conservatives complain about this and say, we need to shut it down. We need to close it down. We need to you know, change everything, lock, stock, and barrel. Then you have you know, Senate minor, uh, Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, the New York liberal. He's like, what? You're against the FBI? You don't want the, the federal law enforcement agencies to go against child pornography and bank fraud? Like, it's like yeah, obviously <laughs> that's our problem. You know, I mean- yeah. Not that they bust into the house of Mark Hawk or that they tell, you know, Twitter to delete comments that's, so we don't have free speech anymore. Like, yeah, right. It's just, it, it, you know, it, it gets a little insane when you have these debates and people are just like, you know, totally lying. And what frustrates me so much about this is that you have this death star of the mainstream media that just doesn't, it shields people from hearing the other side of the story. And that's that's why I feel it's so important to just to get the information out there. That's why I feel like the mission of the loop is so important. Like, let people know this is what's going on out there that, you know, your spoon fed corporate paid for CBS News isn't telling you. So, you know, we got to get the message out there to people. Yeah, but but specific. So I think for people that just see and have now kind of accepted this as normal. You're telling me that it's not normal to see a Department of Justice be so hyperpartisan and obviously attack people for frivolous stuff. Not in the way it's become. No, of course, there's always been the temptation, right, for the President of the United States to influence. The, he, he appoints the Attorney General, and so clearly, it's someone who's you know going to work with him to enforce the laws handed to us by Congress. But I think what Josh is saying is that in the last 15 years, really since end of the Bush, beginning of the Obama era, we've seen this hyper-politicization, um, not only of the Department of Justice, but of the entire fourth branch of government, the, which we've discussed here, you know, again, ad nauseum, that, <laughs> that it's become this sort of bureaucracy more governing and writing the laws that actually affect our daily lives than it has been the Congress. You have a bureaucracy that's just not accountable to the, to the, uh, to, you know, to the American people. And I think that this bureaucracy looked at George W. Bush as not really a, a danger to the, anything that they were doing. Like, he's just going to get in there and he's going to cut some taxes, whatever. But then Donald Trump really promised to be disruptive. And he's like, I'm going to shake things up. He didn't nearly shake didn't it up as much job. as he <laughs> That's for sure. would have hoped. Yeah. I think, part of, I think part of that is because he was listening too much to Ivanka and Jared. Uh, and he really needed to have some people to come in there and really to to remove people from power and fire a lot more people uh, and strip it down. Because right now, if you don't get someone in there to really attack the administrative state, then you're really faced with a situation where it doesn't matter who wins. Like the, you have this enormous bureaucracy that's just changing the country through fiat, through bureaucratic regulations, through throwing money at this and that. And well, and through the press. And through media. And I think the crickets that we heard from the mainstream media over the weekend, again, we had this ruling on the Fifth Circuit just in the last week that, you know, confirmed and convicted that, yes, the FBI, yes, the Biden administration, they had their fingers all through all through the COVID response, all through the election cycles, the midterms last year. They had their fingers in all the major social media platforms, which is where most of the quote unquote news happens and the crickets from the press, which should be a check on the government bureaucracy and on this kind of corruption, just again, it proves that it's hand in glove and that we really do. There really is a problem when the only way people can get information is through the people who are already in power and want to control that narrative. Um, so it's just further confirmation. Elon Musk saying, I'm going to buy Twitter so we can have free speech again. That mm -hmm. was humongous. People are like, he's kind of weird. My wife's like, I don't know. He's kind of weird. He's goofy. His kids' names. He just had another kid. Tau Techno Mechanicus. <laughs> yeah, something crazy. Inspiration. Techno. Inspiration for he's all Catholic <laughs> I'm like, okay. Techno. So what if he's yeah. weird? You know, he 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 believes in, 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 he thinks I should have more free speech than my own government thinks, which I thought we had a government based on our constitution, the Bill of Rights. So yeah, he might be weird. And you know what? He's he's pro free speech and he's also uh, he's fighting against the it. myth of overpopulation. <laughs> if you had asked me who is the the world's strongest proponent of fighting against this myth of overpopulation, you know, most of my life I'd say, uh yeah, you know, the Pope. But that's not the case anymore. We have a Pope that's against uh, you know, don't breed like Sorry. rabbits. Oh, thanks, buddy. 
But at least Elon Musk's like, no, we need to, everyone needs to have more children. Like, yes, that's good. That's smart. Just don't name them Twinkle Tar Stardust <laughs> Techno, whatever. Tau <laughs> Techno what Mechanicus. <laughs> Next child. Yeah, no, I think that um, I was I was listening to some of Biden's uh, attempts at speeches on his trip over to Asia this week for the G20. And again and again, the talking point comes up. The number one threat to the world right now, of course, climate change. It's just it's the talking point, And this is how we're going to build consensus with India and China, who could care less about climate change. I mean, hello, yeah, right. we can cut yeah. all the carbon. We Two biggest want. producers. Cut. If India and China aren't cutting anything, it's not going to do anything. But Elon Musk comes out and he's like, no, the greatest threat right now is the demographic winter, which is coming. And they just hate that. Yeah. They hate it. <laughs> just, Amen, brother. I'm like, yes. He gets it. Yeah. If there's mean, no people. It is kind of two conflicting. It's two conflicting ideologies because one's saying that humans are the problem and the others are saying not enough humans are the problem because we have an innovation gap. Well, it's not, it, you're right, Tom, but it's even more narrow. The one side thinks humans are the problem. The other side thinks humans are the solution. Yeah. And that's the crux mm -hmm. of it. I, he's been pretty explicit with that. Like, basically, we could have more people. The world can handle it. But we need more innovation. It's more of a positive view. Of you know, are, are you guys familiar with the debate? It was between, you know, Paul, mm -hmm. Paul Ehrlich was this uh, doomsday uh, professor. He, was, he wrote the Population Bomb book, like in 1968 or whatever it was. And he's like, we're going to run out of resources by 1980. Everyone's going to be starving to death. It's going to be crazy. The world, you know, famine all through the 90s, there'll be like the population of the world will be so much lower by the year 2000 because they'll just be starved to death. And uh, Julian Simon was this amazing economist at the University of Maryland. He's the guy who told the airlines, by the way, like in the mid 60s, you should actually overbook. You should sell 102% of your, the seats in your airplane. And then what'll happen is two or three percent of people won't make it on time or whatever, and you'll still have a full airplane. And they're like, "Well, wait a minute. What if, what if we don't have enough seats? Like, well, then you just pay them for the seats and get 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 going. You'll be more efficient." And they said, "Nah, nah, nah." They waited like ten years before they like, "Wait a minute, we should do that." I mean, hello, the guy's very smart. And so Paul er uh, Paul Ehrlich's making all of, the media loves him. The population bomb. He's got this big book out and like, whatever it was, sixty eight. And so Julian Simon's like, no, actually, I disagree with you. I think the biggest thing in the world is uh, the, the greatest thing that in the world that we have, the greatest resource is actually humans. Humans are the ultimate resource. That's the point he made. And he goes, he said to Paul, like, I'll bet you a thousand, or I think it was a $10,000, a thousand dollars. I forget what the amount was, 10,000 bucks. You get to pick like four or five minerals or, or resources that you think are obviously going to be more expensive in 10 years. And then after 10 years, we'll look at the score adjusted for inflation or whatever, however it is, and may the best man win. And the population bomb's like, yeah, of course, everything's going to be more expensive because oil, you know, tungsten, steel, whatever it is. And he listed them all off and was, okay, great. 10 years later, Julian Simon wins massively because things, <laughs> and it just, to me, it was just remarkable because the left thinks, oh, doomsday, the world's going to hell in a handbasket. And in fact, I think of the social issues, we are in many ways going astray. But Americans, you know, we have this great ingenuity. We have this, the, the human resource, the, the ability to be entrepreneurial. When we understand that we should act as if God was, you know, he, he, we were created in his image and our creative power is the most beautiful thing that we have. The best thing a government can do, the whole purpose of government, is to give human beings a flourishing life where they can unleash that creativity. If you have a healthy child who's raised in a good family, who has a basic education, you're going to see that kind of creativity and ingenuity applied to the problems that face us, including, among others, what do we do with a changing environment, which is one of many issues that humans have always had to contend with, right? We've had little ice ages, we've had warming periods, and we've contended with them. But when a government instead says, no, the issue is the human person, we need to control people we need to lower population, which was one of those you know, things you don't say that accidentally got said this year by the Biden administration. When you, when you see them as the issue rather than your responsibility to give them a free life to express this creativity, that's when your country goes to pits and ruin. And that's, that's unfortunately, I think, what our options are right now. Yeah. yeah we, Josh, you always bring up the story about what's unique about America. I always will say, 
Americans have an ingenuity and an industrial spirit that you just don't see elsewhere. It's a very unique to American DNA. I mean, the whole country is kind of an innovation in itself, but when the problem of the country is people are overworking, it's a good problem to have. I mean, Americans really are an amazing, innovative people. And I think it's something to be really proud of and something in our history. So that kind of fires me up a little bit. I always say that. But Woo! two things I want to touch on quickly, okay? Because these are news headlines that we, we feel like are worth discussing, but we'll probably uh, continue to update. They're not in their final form right now. So one of them being that uh, the Pope, uh, according to reports, has met uh, last Saturday with uh, some advisors to talk about potentially having Bishop Strickland resign, asking him to resign would be the specific way to put it. Uh, we don't know too many other details right now other than that. We do know this has kind of been brewing for a while. Some people are very happy about this. Uh, some people are very upset. Uh, Josh, where do you think we'll see this? Is this, can he force him to resign or is it just an ask? Not technically, no, actually. I mean, the, and that's the thing. I think what the, what the bishop, the good bishop in Tyler, Texas should do is to say, I'll consider that it's under advisement. And just consider it like that and be done with it. Like force the Pope to actually remove him, which he probably could do. But now just ask me to resign. Like, (laughs) I'm okay. That's what he should say. I'm fine. I got this. Yeah. That was a tough one. I know. I just think that that would be like setting off a bomb. Like, There's already been enough attacks against the American Catholic Church. That would be setting off a bomb in the American Catholic Church, no question. That's about all we know right now. There's uh, anything else is truly speculation. I've heard some pretty intense slander against uh, Bishop Strickland and the Pope, for that matter. I mean, it just seems like something that people are going to be very upset about. So we'll keep you uh, posted. So uh, McCarthy and impeachment. So we have heard there's going to be an impeachment launched, uh, inquiry launched against President Biden for uh, corruption, business deals, things of that nature. Um, Interesting timing on this. I think some people see it as a potential way to save the gavel for the speaker, for McCarthy a way to kind of appease people who have been waiting for this for a long time, calling them for a long time. Uh, some people see it as a legitimate query. There is kind of a tit for tat for what they did to Trump, kind of time to get back at that. Um, all we know right now is there's an inquiry launched. But other than that, it's going to be a developing story. Why do you think they chose to do this now? Oh, I mean, I'm, gonna, I'm in the camp of we have the government shutdown looming. We know the budget's probably going to pass with almost no concessions to the conservative side. We're going to crazy. At best, we get a continuing resolution, maybe a few concessions with the Department of Defense, if the Freedom Caucus can really push for that. Unlikely. And so McCarthy is looking at another round, another political round here of, you're you're not really conservative, you're a terrible leader, which there's an argument for that. And so he's thinking, okay, if I impeach Biden, we just, you know, shiny thing over here, we're impeaching Biden that all the conservatives, you know, they're going to focus on that to get me through the next two weeks until Congress goes off session again. Um, so, I mean, I'm going with it's, it's a political stunt. If they really wanted to actually get something done, they should be impeaching people from the fourth branch, from the bureaucracy. They should be impeaching Merrick Garland. They should be impeaching, you know, Chris Ray, director of the FBI. But instead, they're going for the low-hanging fruit, President Biden. Wow. Of course, we had... I mean, that's not that's low. My, I, I'm well, cynical. What can I it's say? It's not the low hanging fruit, obviously, <laughs> the president of the United States. I mean, no, I guess the point is like to, you know, I, at first they were going to start with this idea of impeaching, you know, sec- Homeland Security Secretary Mayorkas. And then, I mean, obviously, another we, good one. We've been calling for a, a Merrick Garland, the attorney general, to be impeached. I mean, he's completely lawless. Uh, Christopher Ray, you mentioned, would be a good one. The question is, do you just. Do you impeach everybody? Then it looks like it's like you just don't believe you're attacking the entire government. Um, or do you impeach Biden because 10% for the big guy, you've got all these bank records and all these text messages that really make it seem like he's totally corrupt. So go for it, go for broke. And I, I sort of, it's sympathetic to it because like, um, you know, when they decided that they were going to impeach Donald Trump a second time after the January 6th stuff. And I thought to myself, wait a minute now, you would want to impeach him, a vote in the house to impeach him and then have a Senate trial, um, and he's only got like two weeks left in office. That is just dumb. That's just dumb to me. Like, uh, you know, the dumb politics. And, and to me, I just like, you know, the guy, you basically just, you know, take a recess, take a nap, get over it. It's two weeks. You know, you're not going to, it's not like the end of the world. And so to me, 
it to them it was we just wanted to give the stain of shame on Donald Trump by impeaching him a second time. The only president to be impeached twice. It's like, oh, if that's all we're doing, then let's let's just impeach Joe Biden, whether he's innocent or guilty. I mean, just just impeach him. And to me, you know, like, let, you know, if we're going to engage in, in I, you know, I, I guess I, I would be sympathetic to the argument that Republicans should impeach every Democratic president for no matter what, just until Democrats realize we should stop wielding this weapon like an idiot. That's my so render the weapon weapon meaningless, basically. Right. Like it's right. just a gesture. It's what everybody does. Yeah. If you're president, you're going to oh, get impeached. Happy birthday, president. Here's an impeachment. <laughs> Here's your impeachment. Being impeached doesn't mean you're removed. To clarify for people to understand, correct. That's you right. Yeah. No. I, you start. Yeah. You, I mean, Clinton wasn't impeached. Everyone remembers that, right? Yeah. Right. No, it's true that the word people think impeachment means removal. It doesn't. Impeachment requires only a majority vote in the House. The removal re- requires two thirds after the trial in the Senate. And uh, it, it came close once with Andrew Johnson back in you know in the post Civil War era, but it had, you know and. It didn't even get to that with Nixon because he just resigned. Okay. We now move on to the mailbag section. Shout out to Kathy. She sent us a question that we plan on answering here right now. So I'm going to read it out for everyone. Uh, I listened to your weekly podcast on Spotify. Thank you. Uh, On the last one, you briefly mentioned you dislike some of the music used at our liturgies, but you did not explain or give any information on what music you prefer. I've been a church musician for more than 60 years and would like to know what music you like and why you dislike others. It seems to me that each of our masses has a different flavor based on musicians, choirs, or who attends that mass. You mentioned one you mention one series you dislike, but why? I hope you aren't saying that all our music should be the newest and most pop-like style. Don't worry, we are not. Don't uh, worry, that's not what we meant. <laughs> I, would, I would love to hear a part of your discussion about our music and the options available to us. Let's set the record straight. Kathy, thank you for the question. Uh, fortunately, we have very, very strong thoughts on this. Um, I'm going to start off with Erica. You can just kick the ball down. The, here we go. Sure. I mean, I, I would like to reassure Kathy that we're not advocating for, I guess you would call it like the life teen mass style with like the grunge rock and the pop St. Louis and, Je- Jesuit style. Oh, and that too. No. Yeah. We're, we definitely adhere to the directions and standards given to us by the church. And a lot of Catholics are surprised to learn that in fact, there are objective standards for liturgical Music And I think, you know, when you hear Josh or I or even Pogo casting aspersions on some of the lines that of, lit- of liturgical music that the church, especially in America and the West, have taken in the last, oh, 50 years since the 1970s, especially, you know, we're referring to what I'll like call Oregon Catholic press music. So we're talking about composers like Marty Haugen, Dan Shute, David Haas. Um, these are these are songs that have really become the lexicon. And a lot of what the only music that Catholics in normal parishes, like normal, I mean, just your average diocesan parish out in the sticks, that they even know. And so I'm talking about, I mean, I I like to categorize them in in three sort of overlapping circles. One is the narcissism songs, which are all involve I, we, us, and me. So we have like, let us build the city of God, gather us in by Marty Haugen, my least favorite. Here I am, Lord. And you you listen to the songs, you look at the words, and it's all I, me, me, my, we're a great church, we're a new church, we're singing ourselves into being. And then you go from those to just, those are just, you know, tacky to the actual heretical songs. And we think about ashes, which most Catholics hear on Ash Wednesday every year. We rise again from ashes to create ourselves anew. Or the supper of the Lord, one of the lines is precious body, precious blood here in bread and wine. That's just heresy. Catholics don't believe that. Jesus is not in the bread. The bread is the body of Christ. And you just don't sing those songs. And then, of course, there's just the musical standard of, you know, liturgical music is meant to be set apart and special. And used. I'll get into the objective standards in a second. But a lot of this music that came out of the basically 1970 to 1985 that's in our standard, you know, throwaway missiles that we get in our churches. It sounds like something out of Godspell or from the <laughs> Sticks or Chicago. The Gospel or like Sticks. Pete Seeger, Joni Mitchell. And like we've got Eagle's Wings and Lead Me Lord. And these arrangements are just impossible for normal people to pick up and sing. <laughs> so when they're done, they're done badly. Give some or examples. Or people just don't bother singing. Give us the okay, examples. so. All right. All right. So Eagle's Wings. I'm going there. I know this is like everyone's grandfather's funeral. They (laughs) sing Eagle's Wings. I am sorry. 
But having an emotional attachment to a song, because you've been hearing it at church and at your grandpa's funeral, is not the same as it being good liturgical music. And I think that's the major confusion right now among American Catholics is like, well, I feel like I'm in church because I heard Eagle's Wings or Lead Me, Lord, oh. Lead Me, Lord, in the light of truth. And you, that was you're kind like, of a I banger, heard this though. song as a child. That was a ringer. Oh, God. Kind of a banger. Or sing a new song or the Celtic Alleluia. Can I even get into that? <laughs> Do you want me to sing? Josh, can you sing the Celtic sing Alleluia it? for us? No. Because yeah, you can't it. sing it. It's unsingable. And most of them are written, if you actually, I've, I was blessed with some training in music, and they're written outside of a normal vocal range with syncopation. And these, these songs were not written to be sung even badly. They were just unsingable, period. So, yeah, absolutely, Kathy. That's more like what we're getting at when we say, look, Catholic liturgical music in the United States needs to get out of the 70s and 80s and probably back to, I think, Tom, you said you like to feel like you're walking into a church that's 300 AD. Yeah. Let's get some Gregorian chant. That's what that's I want. I want my church to be 300 AD. Or just simply pious hymns like Immaculate Mary and instead of Dan Schutte's, mm-hmm. you know, song that sounds like it's uh, My Little Pony, My Little yes. Pony. <laughs> Glory to God, glory to God. It, oh, you, it tracks. Claps. It's the same bum, bum. music. Bum, bum. It literally yeah. is My Little Pony. Yep. And I, I want to be really clear here because uh, this might make some people upset. We're not talking about the people who are singing these songs or the people that devote time to be in the choir. The, right. The, you're not responsible Understood. for this. But, but the music that is being sung, you have to understand, were made in the 70s and 80s to mimic a pop style. So it's the church becoming more like the world rather than the world becoming more like the church. And it is important to understand there is a standard. And I was actually, when doing research, I'm happy to see this. There's a standard. And sacred church music has been going back thousands of years. So not, not just 40 years to the 80s. We've somehow lost thousands of years of actual sacred music with a direction that make you feel like you're transcending into prayer. And so actually Vatican II did say this. Uh, that actually Gregorian chant was actually supposed to have in direct quote a pride of place in mm-hmm. sacrosanctum concilium. So uh, the church quote the church acknowledges Gregorian chant as specially suited to the Roman liturgy. Therefore, other things being equal, it should be given pride of place in liturgical services. This pride of place was not intended to exclude other types of sacred music, especially uh, poly- polyphony, mm-hmm. so long as they accord with the spirit of liturgical action. So for all the people that are saying, well, this is just some type of faithful interpretation of Vatican II of what we get now, that's just not the truth. We've, we've right. lost a lot of what was intended to be a part of the Mass right now, um, either by malicious means or by just, you know, cool. Ah. Trans- I don't know. You know, it's interesting too, like, and, and even though I took three semesters of Latin, I'm probably not going to say this, this correctly, but the Deus um, IRA D-I-E-S-I-R-A. D-A-C-R-A. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> she actually, it me- yeah, it, I was going to say. It that. means a day of wrath, okay? <laughs> it's it's wrath, from like right? the 13th century Gregorian Requiem, that this song at funerals, right? And this music is is got such a haunting melody, right? That it's used in like so many Hollywood movies. So like, wait a minute now. Holly, Hollywood, they're they're trying to put together a movie. They're trying to either inspire you with good music or scare you with bad music. They want the good stuff. They want the things that are going to move and shake your hearts and minds, right? And they go to Catholic music from the 13th century. They're not taking Dan Judy stuff. That's what I'm getting at. The, <laughs> the liturgy, that we're, the musical stuff that we're given today, they're not sending our best, let me tell you. Seriously. Yeah, can you imagine the Godfather scene at the end when they're like, they have the, the Ave Maria, the Diazere kind of stuff on going. On eagle's wings. Eagle's wings, <laughs> dare you on the breath of God. And and I'll get assassinated. Too, I want to make this point because we're we're the art of politics, the art of the possible, right? And I think understanding that the American church has been in a liturgical musical winter for 50 years. I'm not saying that like the smartest thing to do here is to wipe out all the OCP, all the Dan Shoot, all the Marty Hagen and just like get rid of it because like Josh said, there are there are thousands of Catholic parishes where People of goodwill just haven't been educated in the patrimony that we have, our legacy of this beautiful sacred music that was actually written to be sacred and holy. Yeah. And so it's going to be a process, but I've been blessed to be part of now two parishes in my adult life that have started to you know, educate and introduce through children's choirs, through youth choirs, 
knowledge of the Gregorian mass settings. And it's through repetition and this gentle kind of rolling into it. Fortunately, there are so many resources now for music directors or even just ordinary parishioners to talk with their pastors. Um, I'm going to link two of these resources in the show notes. So if you're interested in how do I get my parish, you know, back into this sort of education of actual sacred music, there are great resources. I'm going to drop them in the show notes. One of them, Church Music Association of America, uh, CC Watershed is another one. So so take a look at those. There's a lot of help out there. CC Watershed's so bomb. I have so much. I love those guys. And all these resources will be in the show notes. These are things that we absolutely want you all to have. But I have so much faith in this, even though it will maybe be a tough transition for some people. Really, all it takes is listening to this stuff one time when it's performed mm-hmm. correctly. It, w- it, it, it sounds like nothing you've ever heard before. Like, like Josh was saying, it sounds like a movie. So it's like, oh, why would you want anything other than this once you And it doesn't it, mean you have to be an elaborate production all the time. As Eric is saying, it's actually this crappy, schlocky stuff from the 70s that Jesuits from St. Louis University put out. That's the stuff that's harder to sing. And it's a total repellent. All the sappy 70s songs re- push men away from the church. They're like, the, 100%. Wh- whether they can articulate it, they're just like, this feels weird. Like, is James Taylor going to come out? Like, I don't get this. <laughs> get out of here. <laughs> okay, so all those will be in there. No more James Taylor. So moving into the Twilight Zone, uh, I'm up first. So I had the absolute pleasure of watching a journalist discover Catholicism in real time. Uh, this comes from, <laughs> uh, from Poland. And it, it is always great to see people being like, who are these weird people called Catholics and what are they? It is really unbelievable. So uh, <laughs> I'll read you the first sentence. Poland's Catholic Church has defended a school textbook it approved for third grade children that includes a quote suggesting it is better to die than to sin. However, a number of NGOs that work on combating suicide among children and youth attempts at which it has risen dramatically over two years, have warned that exposing young children to such ideas is dangerous. Oh, and now they're so, worried about kids being exposed to dangerous ideas. That's that's great. So, so the good the good old NGOs came in and they're saying, Poland, what are you doing? You know, we know what's best. The NGOs know what's best. So you, what the heck's going on? We need to make some changes. So for anyone wondering, this is the quote in the textbook. Uh, when I was seven year old, seven years old, I received Holy Communion. I then made resolutions that I followed for the rest of my life, reads the passage. It then lists those resolutions with the fourth being, I prefer to die than to sin. Uh, So me reading this article, I'm like, "Hmm, I wonder if they've ever heard of certain saints. Um, They hadn't, clearly. No, Tom. Wait wait for it. Wait for it. (laughs) This is the best part. The quote, which is attributed to Dominic Savio, an Italian boy who died age 14 in 1857. And then they finally get to the point and was made a saint a century later, is often translated into English simply as death rather than sin. So they found out in real time that this weird Italian boy who died at 14 was a saint. And they decided to put that in there. The sentence in the book, regardless of its source, can have a very strong impact on a child's psyche, causing problems with self-acceptance, pushing them into a state of constant pressure towards themselves, ending with a building sense of guilt and willingness to take their own life, added the group. Thank goodness for these NGOs to really come in and dissuade those Explain. weird Catholics of teaching, yeah. um, you know, preparation for First Communion. And hey, guys, you rather- think this is crazy? Wait, do you see Islam? <laughs> <laughs> oh man! Why don't you yeah, guys on a hop on a flight to Tehran or something like that? I don't know. Mix don't it know. up a little bit. These guys have never cracked open a book, and, and it kind of reminds me of um, Stephen was pointing this out with an article. Uh, I don't think it was Slate. It might have been Slate, but it was. Someone read one of the textbooks that was in the libraries that parents are upset about. Dude, you're blowing my Twilight Zone. No, 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 I'm not. I'm not going to blow it. I'm not going to blow it. But basically, the way that this journalist wrote, they they consulted another expert. It was one of those pro-LGP whatevers. The way that they talked about Catholicism reminded me of this, and I'm going to let Erica go full into that detail, but it's almost like they look at people like they're aliens and like they have the answer. And our answer is way better. So look what we that... discovered in a lab. They're called a Catholic. Right. But, <laughs> but the crazy thing is like. Who actually believes their faith. So they observe a reality. This is kind of like the, the economics part of me is just screaming right now. But they, they look at some stat that they can use to their advantage. Oh, you suicides up. Hmm. How can we attribute this to something that we find weird and don't like instead of actually, I don't know, controlling for a variable and so they're like, oh, this has got to be these weird Catholics in which a saint, a young boy in the 1850s said that he'd rather die than sin. 
as opposed to literally chopping off the genitals of kids. You don't think that's contributing at all? So so it's kind of crazy. Their prescribed solution, of course, if you go two more tertiary effect here is, no, they got to chop their genitals off in order to stop from dying because that's the (laughs) faith they want to use. But if I could end, I do have faith in Poland. So the uh, education ministry uh, is ran by this guy, Artur uh, Gorecki. Uh, he said, religious education curriculums and teaching materials are the responsibility of churches and religious communities. Gorecki was appointed by the current ultra-conservative education minister. I can't even pronounce this guy's name. Starts with a P, Charnik. ends with a W. Go with the last name, uh, Charnik. Charnik. got it. Um, yeah. <laughs> he, he is an outspoken religious conservative. During a lecture in 2020, Gorecki warned of the threats that arise when religious ceases to have an influence in schools because all truth comes from God, direct quote. The following year, he declared it vital for Polish children to receive a Christian education so that they can save Latin civilization. So I doubt this guy's going to bow down to the NGOs. Ultra conservative sounds normal. Yeah. Ah. Um, so <laughs> hilarious to watch this. Like, they're looking at these people in a lab, and I'm like, you know, we actually believe this, right? And people all over the world actually believe this, and that actually is a very common belief for people that want to receive the Eucharist, is basically to avoid sin at all costs. No, you know, that reminds From me, the- though. My friend, she... Uh, she- <laughs> She got an internship at NBC News, and she's uh, uh, Genevieve Wood. She was originally from Texarkana, Arkansas, or Texas, I mean. I, she always makes sure I know that. She's from Texas. She was, she was interning or working at uh, NBC News in Manhattan. And bless her heart, she like, goes around people, hey, uh, where can I go to church? Do you, know, you guys know where there's a good church around here? And it was like, what? But poor you, what? <laughs> no one in the building. They're like, I, what? I, no, a church? I, I don't know. Like, there's probably some Catholic thing down the road. And like. They had no clue. It was like, you can ask in for where to find dope, uh, cocaine, yeah, dr- right. you know, yeah. Like, nah, you got you, a good drug dealer? Yeah, yeah right. Uh, no idea where to go to church. I, I got that eight was... on speed dial. MSNBC, man. Erica, I sincerely apologize. I may have tipped yours a little bit, but Hey, that's all right, floor. Pogo. Hey, it, it yes. worked out. <laughs> All right, Twilight Zone. So this is what our our Senate, United States Senate, is concerned with this week. Senator Dick Durbin headed a hearing on the Nazi-like state into which the United States has now descended, a land in which thousands of moms and school boards are calling for the banning, if not the outright burning, of books. And so we had Illinois Secretary of State Alexei Giannoulias. He testified on Illinois' own anti-book ban law. So Illinois leading the charge to shut down all these moms who are concerned about pornography in their children's school libraries. He testified uh, before the Senate Judiciary Committee. During the hearing, Senator John Kennedy, always great. I just like to listen to his accent, but when he reads pornography out loud in the Senate hearing and no one bats an eyelash, it's it's truly Twilight Zone material. I actually had to skip through a lot of what he was reading because it, it is abs. Oh my gosh! Absolutely well, he thinks graphic. it's gross so he, too, just so people understand, right? Yes. Yeah. No, he is anti, but he's like, let me just understand. I'm gonna read from these books that these moms are hoping we can remove from the elementary library. Are you saying? Shelves. Are you saying? It's- are you saying? And so he read he read these passages from two of the books that were being touted as banned, save a banned book. All Boys Aren't Blue, and Gender Queer. And these are graphic passages. And at the end of this, the Illinois Secretary of State instructs Kennedy that these passages, which are instructing children in the fourth grade, so we're talking eight, nine, ten-year-olds on how to have gay sex in the bushes outside of their youth ministry meeting at church. He suggests to Kennedy that he, is draw- he draws a, a, a parallel between the rape scene in To Kill a Mockingbird and All Boys Aren't Blue, thereby suggesting that Senator Kennedy wants to oh. ban To Kill a Mockingbird because he's somehow racist at the same time he wants to ban these. It was that's, such a ridiculous That's comparison. not all he said. Did you hear what else it, he said? <laughs> go for it. <laughs> he, said, he said, that was pretty disturbing coming out of your mouth. I'm like, hmm. Yeah. That's, Interesting. He did acknowledge it was disturbing, but then he goes on to say, just like the rape scene in To Kill a Mockingbird, <laughs> thereby perhaps tipping his hand that he's never actually read To Kill a Mockingbird in and his then life. And then did you hear the the communist that they brought up from Minis- uh, <laughs> Minneapolis? She was there, or I'm sorry, I, I don't I honestly, genuinely, I'm just saying this truly, I don't know what her pronouns are, but uh, yeah. she was wearing, the person was wearing a suit. I, we weren't really sure. 
And uh, Senator Kennedy's like, Miss, what do you think about this? He's like, she said, it's mix. And he's like, basically, he's like, whatever, it's whatever mix. your pronoun yeah. is, man. Like, Tell me what you, you want me to call you. Yeah. yeah, you just heard yeah. me report. Like, what do you think about this? Like, he was great, well, though. I mean, and, and I, I did want to give a shout out to another panelist who was there for the minority. And get this. The people who were saying maybe 80-year-olds shouldn't read instructions on how to have oral sex. That was the minority on the panel. So Max Eden from American Enterprise Institute, I just wanted to read the end of his, own, his statement. And he just read it out loud. He goes, 10-year-olds performing sodomy, underage incest, strap-on dildo blowjobs. Is this okay for kids? Judging by the fuss made by the media, NGOs, and some Democratic politicians, it seems that there is a politically significant contingent that believes that this is all actually very good for kids, which was the conclusion what would have gotten listening to the testimony of this hearing. And Max, he concluded, but personally, I'm not at all troubled by the fact that some moms believe this is inappropriate and that some school boards agree. And I find it kind of weird that the United States Senate is troubled enough to call a hearing about all of this because it indicates some kind of Nazi-like takeover of the United States, but by implication. So again, this whole hearing was just another exercise in true Twilight Zone. Shout out to Moms for Liberty. Shout out to anyone who's pushing back on this. Segway to Josh Twilight Zone. Go for it. So this one liberal uh, uh, editorial cartoonist, um, I think it was in Chattanooga, I can't remember where, uh, he decides that he's going to show that the Moms for Liberty are, you know, again, like this sort of Nazi-esque threat. It shows this uh, bear, this grizzly bear with blood soaking from its mouth and from its paws, and it murdered, obviously, all these, you know, LGBT and CRT people, which is just obviously another vicious smear. Um, but of course, what people just did, <laughs> I love this. They posted it on Twitter, like, just use it as a badge of honor. Like, yeah, that's right. She's got a lot of blood on her hands. She's got blood all over her body. But you know what? The cubs are safe because they had drawn two cubs <laughs> and the cubs didn't have any blood. Cubs had no blood. They looked fine. Mama cubs bear no protecting blood. her cubs. I love it. Let's go. So um, I'm, you know, badge of honor. Yeah, go ahead. It is kind of odd that someone thought they really dunked on them there. Like yeah, they just. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds awesome. like a mom doing her job. Right. <laughs> exactly. It's like, that's what we're all kind of called to do. Jeez. Exactly. Yeah. What a wild. I, my favorite part about the whole saga too was, um. Aaron Rupar, who's kind of a notorious uh, <laughs> li- lib uh, commentator, uh, clipped up the Senator Kennedy stuff and like Senator Kennedy having a normal one today. And it was him, of course, like reading graphic reading porn. Reading the graphic, yeah. Mm-hmm. And everyone, I, I mean everyone, and he has a pretty liberal following, was like, wait, but wasn't he reading from a book that's in You think it's totally good for eight-year-olds, yeah. You, yeah, it was like, wait, but he's reading. What was he reading? Oh, book for a little. And, and Aaron Rupar's like, man, this is disgusting. Can't believe he's doing this. I'm like, guys, this is in every library in America, guys. I mean, it's pure gaslighting. Like, oh my gosh, the, the senator whole, from Louisiana is so gross. The whole, the whole thing was predicated upon who makes the decisions as to whether or not this is allowed. And it was so funny to watch them kind of descend in like little power fights over like, well, no, it should be this board appointed by. This this group of people, this group has a say, and, and basically Senator Kennedy's like, so you're telling me a parent has no say? You're saying mm-hmm. that that is no part of what happens here. It's all just handed right. off to these committees. And they when basically this said, is at yeah. Stake, and yeah, basically the answer was yes. It was like, screw you, we're gonna put whatever we want, and and it just makes you. This is the easiest win, I think, for uh, people of goodwill on the other side because it's just so obvious. Like, you just, all it takes is people reading it. So it's cool. It's read in Congress in a way. Because it's the highest place. I've heard so many school board meetings of this, but we're finally here in Congress. Right? Uh, the Senate likes to call itself America's greatest deliberative body. Let me check the tallies. I've been enjoying checking tallies on, on podcasts. We're at 356. 356 Woo! comments on Apple Podcasts. Uh, I'd like to give a good shout out to someone wrote, uh, Thursdays is my favorite day. Uh, every week, I eagerly await the latest episode from the Loopcast, honest, true, and informative. The crew is on top of the latest news stories, especially ones that aren't covered by the mainstream media, but should be. Thank you for incorporating a Catholic perspective and for your courage in reporting what others won't. God bless. Shout out Melissa Rose, 58. I'm sure that wasn't your mom writing that. It sounds like something. <laughs> so if someone could figure it out, my mom did write a review because she just got an iPhone and was like, now I can leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Like, this is oh, she was show. the one star. 
<laughs> yeah, no, uh, no. <laughs> Someone not Janet. No, no, not gave us five stars. Shout out. She she used a, a fake name though, so good luck finding her. Um, and then on Spotify, I think we're at one eleven. So if you guys want to get those up, appreciate it. All you have to do, just leave five stars. If you want to write a detailed review, we'd appreciate it. Well, and it's not just a review. You got to send us an email about th- th- something that we're talking about on the podcast. Like that's what it was so great to hear from Kathy. Let's get more uh, letters from the mailbag. So send us stuff. What's the email address again, Tom? Loopcast at catholicvote.org. Tell I love it. Me. We'll get in the episode. So uh, as, we, as we always end, St. Thomas More, St. Fidelis, Our Lady of Guadalupe, pray for us. And we will see you guys next Thursday. Bye, guys.